Welcome to the Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I am Gita Schwartz, a senior staff attorney, and I'm joined by Bertha Justice Fellow and attorney Lupe Aguirre. Greetings, everyone, and thanks for joining. Uh, Lupe and I, among others here, work to fight abusive immigration practices. Today, we will be discussing how our work has shifted since the COVID-19 pandemic hit the United States, the cases we filed over the last couple of months, and the importance of the Free Them All campaign. Thanks, Gita. So I think I just kind of like would like to point out and kind of like discuss or touch on kind of like how in the context of all, of, like in the context of all of these other intersecting issues, the pandemic is really underscoring kind of like the vast injustice and inhumanity of our immigration system and in particular the detention system. So um, can we talk about the cases that we filed in the South? I think that's a great place to start. Um, I think a lot of people know that we have this dramatically expanding immigration detention system, uh, but it may not be common knowledge that Immigration detention is not detention after you've been tried with an attorney and given a sentence. It's actually civil detention, and a significant uh, number of people in immigration detention are people who asked for asylum, and a significant number are also people who have lived in the United States for years as lawful permanent residents but are being uh, are in proceedings to have that status stripped because of uh, a conviction they received, often a conviction from from decades ago. Uh, one of our one of our many plaintiffs in the Southern cases is someone who's who's lived in the United States since he was 16, and the conviction for which he's in removal proceedings is a marijuana conviction from 1992. So the detention system is not the criminal justice system. It's this system that's sort of beyond the courts, beyond, um, the, beyond the regular courts that we sort of all know of and think of and see on law and order, and, and is this you know, somewhat secret system where people have many fewer rights and, and can be detained often for years uh, while handling their immigration proceedings. Um, and our cases in the South right now are to try to get some of those people out of detention because they are especially vulnerable to severe illness from COVID-19. Yeah, and I think what's striking to me is how this is really showcasing how historically ICE has been unable and, I mean, even unwilling to curb or meaningful address meaningfully address the lack of medical care and protection from those it's taken from their families and their communities and, and in prison. So, I mean, this is next level. This is a pandemic, but it's not unheard of. And when we've heard of all of these deaths that happened in detention um, and lots of outbreaks from ranging from the flu and measles. And so ICE is just really inequipped um, which is part of our argument to to protect these medically vulnerable people, and I think one way that um, our our work has shifted since the pandemic and even since the era of Trump is 
immigration work, especially in the context of detention, has always been really difficult and challenging. But since Trump, we really had to pivot and go on defensive mode. And then since this pandemic, it's just uh, just another level of that. It's like on steroids, right? Really trying to triage and protect those that are the most vulnerable in, in, in amongst us. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, you know, some of our, some of what's come out during the pandemic is how irrational, how cruel, how common the sort of suffering is for ordinary people in detention or prison, for older people in detention or prison, uh, and for, you know, people who have very, very few resources financially uh, in, in detention or prison. And you're absolutely right. There has been numerous outbreaks of infectious disease in immigration detention as well as in, as in prisons. And the COVID-19 pandemic isn't really something new. It's, it's just a sort of extreme emergency manifestation of all the problems that we've seen because of mass incarceration and the growth of immigration detention. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the special circumstances we're seeing for our clients who are detained in places we've filed cases, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. You know, many, many advocates around the country have been filing cases for people in prison and for people in immigration detention in California, in Oregon, in Washington, in Boston, in New York, in New Jersey. But there are some sort of special circumstances that we have when filing in the southern states where we are filing. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a couple of things that come to mind in terms of kind of like the particular circumstances or challenges, um, what have you, with cases in, in, in the south. One, there have been incredible efforts across the country to, to get vulnerable folks and, and lots of other folks released from ICE detention. And we've really been trying to use those cases to advocate for our, our plaintiffs uh, in, in the South. Unfortunately, some of the, the jurisdictions in the South where we're litigating these cases are more hostile kind of to immigration cases, particularly in detention. They have a harder time grasping kind of like this idea that you mentioned early on that this is civil detention, notwithstanding whatever criminal histories or alleged criminal histories our clients might have. So I've really seen kind of like some of the judges grapple, grapple with that and not recognize that to detain someone civilly and really put their health um, and lives at risk does not make sense in the context of whatever government interest there is to make sure that these folks attend immigration hearings, which, you know, we've also shown are very, very likely to do so, just through a lot of data and evidence. And then the other kind of more logistical or practical kind of challenge of, of being in the South is if, if our plaintiffs do get ill, the infrastructure, the medical infrastructure in, in the rural South, where a lot of these detention centers are, is severely lacking. And so, you know, if there is an outbreak in those centers or when there's outbreaks in those centers and in those communities, are our 
plaintiffs going to get the medical care that they need and deserve? Um, or is the system going to be overwhelmed? So that's just a huge concern that I know that we've been grappling and, and trying to advocate for, or the release of our clients. Yeah, I mean, I think the rural infrastructure, the sort of the overall problems in our healthcare system generally for, for all of us, but particularly in rural communities, is one of the things that this pandemic is highlighting. And in some of these areas where the detention center is the business of the town, it's, it was supposedly brought in there to be this economic stimulus and job creator for the town, it's posing the problem that it could also be the, the thing that is burdening the town with, you know, with the potential healthcare needs. And, and one of the things that, you know, has really been a theme in a lot of the cases that we've, that we've worked on ourselves or that we've seen from others is the effect on the staff and the outside community. You know, ICE every day reports the number of people that have tested positive for COVID-19, and they've only tested a couple of thousand people in a system of 30,000. And then they report the number of ICE employees, which has stayed stable at 44 for the last few weeks, who've tested positive for COVID-19. But they don't report on the vast majority of the employees of the detention system who are employed by private contractors. And we're just getting news reports that, you know, staff who come in and out of these detention facilities themselves are getting sick, some are dying, and the health of the detention center and the people within it is really affecting the health of the community outside and vice versa. When people in this rural community start getting this illness, it comes into the detention facility and there it spreads like wildfire. And that piece of it, I think, is really showing how devastating, how wrong, not just morally, but also practically, it is to have your entire economy depend on a detention center rather than on some positive, affirmative kind of industry or business. Yeah, and I think it would be good now to talk about some of the conditions that, that we've seen. Um, I'm not sure folks, and in talking to other folks not doing this work directly, they're, they're very surprised to hear about just some of the horrible conditions and just things that seem so illogical or irrational, um, or irrational that we're seeing in, in these detention centers. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that we have heard of, it's like out of three centuries ago. You know, men living 40 to a barrack in extremely humid temperatures in one detention facility in Louisiana, where the beds are metal and so humid that they're all rusted, where there are fans blowing around, you know, spreading the aerosolized illnesses that everyone is suspected of carrying. You know, the conditions that the, the facilities are cleaned, I think exclusively in our cases, by the detained people themselves who are paid $1.50 or $1 a day to do the cleaning. That's how the detention facilities sort of contain costs. They don't have doctors available on a prompt level. They're, you know, frequently a dozen people sharing a bathroom or a shower. There's no social distancing uh, in one facility that uh, where we're litigating, we're trying to litigate 
people out of the facility in Mississippi. They finally, you know, one of our clients reported that she had been yelled at for, you know, making her own mask out of a bed sheet a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, we don't have COVID here. If a couple weeks later, they had 15 cases. And now they've given everybody a paper surgical mask, and it's supposed to last for two weeks, and then they give people another one. These are things that are supposed to be single use. You know, we're talking about something that in the outside world we would consider extremely dangerous. Absolutely no protection against the spread of this illness. And for the medically vulnerable people that we are representing, it's, it's just terrifying. I think, you know, one of the things not to lose sight of is not just the physical threat, but the incredible psychological terror that people are facing because they are, they're already ill with some kind of underlying condition, diabetes, blood pressure, liver disease, and the threat of this illness is, is, is just frightening. Yeah, and I would just add to that a couple of striking kind of like things that I know um, we've heard from our, our clients, our, our plaintiffs. One, just kind of the, the sheer lack of even a sense of self-preservation for the staff as well, since there's numerous reports across all of the detention centers that we're litigating against, that there's inconsistent use of masks amongst the staff. Yeah, just mind like baffling to the mind. And then the other thing is when folks feel empowered to really like advocate for themselves um, and their health and their and their lives, um, we've seen or we've heard of ICE even in news reports uh, using force. Right, there was a case in I believe it was um, one of the detention centers in Louisiana where some of the women and folks were protesting, demanding you know protective gear and uh, to be better equipped to protect themselves and they were greeted with uh, tear gassing or, or pepper spraying. Yeah, pepper spray. Yeah. Yeah, so it just goes to show kind of just yeah, the level of indifference, um, cruelty um, in, in, in these detention centers. Yeah, I mean, one of the, it's, it's this pandemic is really highlighting, you know, who do we think of as disposable? Mm. One of the groups that we think of as disposable, although perhaps less disposable than people in detention and prison, are, are people in nursing homes. And there's no question that in these congregate facilities like nursing homes, the threats of rapid spread and severe illness and death are, are very, very high. You know, even in, in, in Mississippi, I believe also in Louisiana, the state public department of health posts how many deaths there are in, in long-term care facilities. They don't do that for prisons and detention centers, uh, but it's at least as rapid and terrifying in prisons and detention centers because they're living in these large group congregate conditions. I think one other piece of it is, you know, since the pandemic started, the remoteness and inaccessibility of some of the detention centers has just been exacerbated because most centers have shut down social visitation, a legal visitation is very limited, and every kind of contact has to be through telephone. Now, for many people who are in, who are detained in the South, they aren't actually from the South or from the state where they're detained. I sense New Yorkers to Mississippi, they send, you know, people from Ohio to Louisiana, People are, you know, from all over the country in these very remote facilities, far from their attorneys, 
far from community members who might help them if they're eligible for bond, raise bond, you know, far from anyone who could come and see them even before this pandemic hit. And now the isolation has grown even more significant. And because outsiders can't come in and witness what's happening, really the only place to go is to the courts. And if the court isn't sympathetic, their, you know, their options are very limited. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great segue into maybe like our last topic, which is the importance of the Free Them All campaign um, and how maybe how this, this fits into that, especially given that we were very strategic in particular about litigating for or advocating for um, medically vulnerable people in the South. I'm trying, you know, you know, we're in a very unprecedented time. It's a challenge to advocate um, in, with these systems that have always been designed to work against uh, vulnerable people, particularly immigrants and immigrants of color um, and all the other intersecting kind of um, identity markers. So I'm wondering if we can maybe think through and discuss just moving forward, how, what can we learn from this? What does that mean for Freedom All and like how can we think more transformatively? Yeah, I mean, as, as litigators, we know too well how hard it is to, to win in court and how important it is to have a large, committed public movement to change hearts and minds, to put pressure on decision makers, and to help free people. I think this pandemic is really, you know, showing us it's not knew how how important those movements are and how important it is to sort of think about the conversation not in terms of who deserves to be free or who deserves to be in detention but you know why is it that we have this system that profits off of people's intense suffering illness and potential death and these public campaigns that are, you know, being organized by Detention Watch Network, by the Freedom All campaign, by so many wonderful immigrant communities are, are really extremely essential. And I think one also thing to highlight in terms of like moving forward and just the importance of Freedom All is, you know, the way uh, these efforts, litigation advocacy and non-litigation advocacy are drawing attention to like places that don't often get the spotlight. So for our cases, the South, the rural South, and for people that are normally not that sympathetic to like the general public. So folks with criminal histories or convictions, um, which are um, some of our clients as well. And so the fact that we're um, really advocating for the release of those folks means that we mean free them all um, and all means all all means all i think probably we can end it on that on that note all means all, all. Means all. <laughs> this has been a really rich discussion and i hope everyone is more informed about our casework um, in the immigration space particularly the detention space post uh, this pandemic and we, we hope we've created like space and an opportunity to really think transformatively, as I know we're trying to do, to really advocate for the liberation of all people 
especially those most vulnerable. So there will be resources and more information on our website, ccrjustice.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.